Hi, Robert. Are you a techno optimist? It depends on the day of the week. Um, actually, my my son is a computer scientist. He, he does machine learning, artificial intelligence, and there'll be days where he will say these very grandiose, optimistic things like the first immortal person is already alive. Mm-hmm. And they'll, oh, thanks to biohacking and transhuman modifications and such. Um, but then there's days where he convinces me that what's going to happen instead is in about 20 or 30 years, the machines will just take us for our carbon and that will be end, the end of us. So I'm, I'm very mixed as to whether or not it's in a good direction. My guess is what it will mostly do is create the same anxieties that every new realm of technology and invention and in communication is brought in, which is that older people will sit there and say, this is the end of civilization and this is going to destroy everything. And it turns out to be okay. turns out to have some pluses, some minuses, and then people move on to the next thing. Do you think we will see such drastic changes uh, in the near future? How long will it take? 10, 20, 30 years? Well, given that I, I barely know how to use my, my iPhone, I probably am not a good person to make informed predictions. I think it's probably safe to say that it will happen a lot sooner than one would predict and a lot sooner than we are psychologically or sociologically prepared for. Yeah, let's turn to your area of expertise then, neuroscience, because all those dramatic changes will surely result in some changes in our psychology, in our behavior, maybe even in human values. What do you think will happen to such notions as, for example, happiness in this uh, uh, bright future? Well, again, assuming that that future is bright, which may be a bit of a gamble, um, where this all fits in, I think, is, you know, we could be made happy today by things that would make no sense to our ancestors, like our grandparents, let alone humans a thousand years ago. We could be made happy by a recording, the sounds of musical instruments that were not actually being played at the time that we're listening to it. And we were able to adapt to this. We could, in the last 500 years or so, be made to feel happy by reading a novel about someone who doesn't actually exist. And that was a completely strange idea. We're going to be made happy by all sorts of stuff we never could have imagined before simply because of technology. And no doubt what the result of that will be is some of us will be sufficiently happy and some of us will mistake pleasure for happiness and some of us will never be satisfied and it will simply be in a new technological arena. Do you think that uh, human... uh evolution is not fast enough to compete with those rapid changes and that could make a significant proportion of humankind unhappy, stressed because all those uh, futuristic uh, uh, novelties. Um, Absolutely. I mean, one of the cliches of people who think about this stuff is to emphasize 99% of human history 
has been spent, spent as hunter-gatherers in small bands of individuals who, if they're not relatives, at least know each other very well, wandering over the grasslands without any material resources. And that's what we evolved from. And we've had 20, 30,000 years of incredibly rapid change. And our bodies and our brains and our psyches certainly have not caught up. And that has certainly produced some of the you know, some of the largest sources of misery and poor health on this planet. So already we see those uh, uh, cases of unhappiness, burnout because of technologies, right? Uh, will it even escalate? Oh, I think absolutely. In hunter-gatherers have next to no material wealth, but as soon as people made the transition to domesticated animals, you could have a flock, you could have a flock of sheep or goats. And thus, for the first time in the history of our species, you could be jealous of your neighbor, neighbor mm -hmm. because they had more goats than you had. And now, you know, thanks to what apparently are like popular television programs, at least in the United States, you can watch TV programs that tour the homes, the mansions of wildly wealthy people. And now you can sit there and feel envious of somebody who you're never going to even meet in your life. You could be driving down the road and a very expensive sports car goes past you quickly and you could feel like an inadequate failure in your life because of this person's success and you never even see their face. All you see is their car disappearing in front of you. What technology is providing is, you know, as I was saying a few minutes ago, completely new ways to feel happy, but very often it's providing us with even more ways to feel insecure and unsuccessful and envious and resentful and that's not a great thing. Absolutely. Uh, I can add that Instagram adds uh, a lot to that feeling of uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. You see the lives of other people, the bright side of uh, their lives. They don't show you uh, the drawbacks. They show you the beautiful life and you feel less happy. So what do scientists say about this? How to better cope with that? Well, I think one thing that is seen is what social media does, and I say this, um, you know, I'm at Stanford University, which is about five miles away from the very heart of Silicon Valley. So all we are is social media empire rising out of Silicon Valley here and worship of that. Um, what becomes clear nonetheless is what social media does is it exaggerates some of the social pathologies that are already there. Angry people can become even angrier. Violent people could now find violent people on the other side of the planet to be violent with. People who are shy and feel insecure could now spend 24 hours a day seeing evidence about how everybody else is more beautiful and more graceful and more wealthy and more gifted than you are. And all it does is exaggerate all of that. I think what we have to recognize is, you know, what, what science might have to say that could be helpful is to understand who is most vulnerable to the worst 
effects of sort of these new technologies. And we'll be the same people who were most vulnerable when they invented an axe. And suddenly you could take an axe and, you know, injure three people instead of one person that you could with a stick. And this is now technology making it possible for the violent to be even more violent. It's much the same here. We're simply going to have to be aware of who is most vulnerable to the most tempting and seductive and destructive aspects of any new type of technology. Has there already been any research on uh, the vulnerable groups of population? Who are they? Biologically, it's fair to say a group that is biologically predisposed towards high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression, high levels of insecurity, a great deal of vulnerability to conformity. Who are we talking about? Teenagers. Teenagers who have brains that are just begging to make you feel like who you are is the sum of what everybody else thinks you are. And this is hugely corrosive. And what's being studied now is trying to understand why is the technology of peer pressure and novelty seeking and risk taking and, you know, conforming behavior, why is it so much more powerful on like a 15-year-old kid than a 30-year-old, 15-year-olds who are just begging to have their minds messed up and their emotions messed up very dramatically by a technology that in some way is being designed to do exactly that to them. So teenagers are uh, the most vulnerable group and... Uh... I have, for example, younger siblings, a brother and two sisters. They're all teenagers, and I'm also worried about them. Maybe you could give some specific recommendations what to do to minimize those risk factors because of technologies, because of uh, all those social media and peer pressure that you mentioned. As a parent, one of the things that I've learned that most parents learn is you have astonishingly little ability to influence uh, some ways in which your kids turn out, especially when they're teenagers. Um, some of the things that do come through, though, um, much has been made, for example, about how violent many video games are. And all sorts of studies in the United States essentially asking, do violent video games make kids and teenagers more violent? And the answer is, it makes kids and teenagers who were already leaning in the direction of being more violent even more so. Okay, so that's what people have learned. But then it's discovered weird. When you look in Japan, Japan has a video gaming culture that's even more violent than in the United States. And this doesn't turn into actual behavioral violence in anyone. What's the difference? And one of the things that's thought to be really important is a structure about Japanese family life. A teenage kid sitting there doing some violent video game is sitting in the living room with the rest of their family. We were doing whatever they're doing and it's still in a social context. American video gaming has invented this possibility of this antisocial, isolated lone wolf sitting there in the dark in a room at two in the morning, confusing reality with what their fantasy online world is. So you could begin to appreciate like 
social context can protect you, can be buffer. One of the other things is realizing that amid parents having so little control over influencing kids, once kids get to the point where they're basically embarrassed by their parents and can't believe they have to be seen with them, um, one of the few things parents can do is influence which peer groups are available to you. If this turns out to be a school with gangs in it, with the worst possible influences on them, pick up and move to the other end of the country. And I know a number of sort of child psychologists dealing with kids who are getting into trouble and beginning to head in that path, where what winds up being the most effective therapy is not to understand why is this kid so vulnerable to pressure and conformity, get the parents to pick up and move and move to a different community where they're not going to be around kids like these. And that can turn out to be one of the best interventions possible. So to clarify, you are not in favor of banning video games, violent video games for kids, as long as uh, the kids have a good environment and a loving family. Uh, is that correct? Absolutely. As long as it's in the right context, um, because it's absolutely clear that there are times when it would make sense to ban all of literature and all of history books and all of... to mind Kampf and everything else that has had it, because this is a powerful technology for twisting people's minds. You know, we've learned how to deal with books that are inflammatory or have really dangerous messages in them. We're learning how to do the same with the newest versions of these technologies. Okay, let's get back to the topic of happiness in the modern world. Uh, is there any research that shows that on average we became happier or less happy during the last uh, 10 or 20 years because of the technologies? I think what the studies show is that general levels, levels of happiness remain the same. These huge cross-national studies looking at a function of the wealth of a country, the income inequality, what the levels of happiness are, and they do not seem to have changed a whole lot, which perhaps tells you something meaningful, or maybe it just tells you that people's definition of happiness in their heads has been changing over time. But one of the things that I think you see is where this new technology goes in directions that can affect happiness is this ability to find out like, oh my God, I'm a failure at things I never even knew existed. I wouldn't be good at 27 different things I had never even heard about before that would prove my inadequacy. I think what happiness has wound up doing is being far more captive to technology and interventions. I mean, as an example of it, and a very biological one, you look at the range of things that could make us happy, us as biological organisms, us with brains that use this neurotransmitter dopamine, which is about anticipation and pleasure and reward and all of that. And we have this amazing dopamine system in that under the right circumstances, we will release a big bunch of dopamine because you've just stepped outside And it's the first day of spring and you've just smelled the first flowers in six months and the world seems like a wonderful place. 
And then two days later, you're secreting the exact same amount of dopamine during an orgasm. And then two days after that, you're secreting the same amount because you're doing something else. For we have the system that could deal with a very wide range of mammalian pleasures. But then along comes things like cocaine, euphoria and drugs. Along comes snack food, junk food that have been designed by brilliant like food chemists to be more rewarding than anything mother nature has ever come up with. You suddenly get into a world where your dopamine system can be stimulated a thousand fold more than anything the real world ever does. And what that leaves you with afterward is the real world doesn't seem quite as desirable as it did before. Everything begins to get a lot, a lot flatter after that. When you push the system of dopamine so that it now has to encompass taking an addictive drug, by the time you're done with that, you really can't detect the smell of a new flower in springtime anymore, and everything else just seems kind of fleeting and inadequate. In those uh, times of challenging environment, many people turn to meditation, mindfulness, and other practices in uh, this field. What does neuroscience say about them? Are they effective to make us happier or more productive or less prone to addictions? Well, of course, it depends. I say in a very unhelpful manner, it depends on how you define happiness and addiction and all of those things. You know, I'm a professor, so I can answer anything by saying it depends on how you <laughs> define your terms. But it does depend on that to a certain extent. What you see is if your notion of a good outcome, say, of meditation is that your blood pressure isn't as high. Absolutely. It works. There's a whole literature by now showing meditate regularly, mindfulness, all sorts of sort of interventions along those lines can do great things for your health. It's a complicated literature to make sense of for the very simple reason that it's very hard to randomly pick someone like you would pick a lab rat and say to this person, okay, you're now going to meditate three hours a day for the next 30 years. Bro, you, you over here, you're never going to go near meditating. And we're all going to meet up 30 years from now and see how our, how our you know, cardiovascular system is working. It's very hard to do that sort of science with humans. Um, but nonetheless, it has health benefits. Does it make you more happy? What the studies are much less clear on is if it will do it in a more sustained way. You come out of a period of meditation and the average person is, if not more pleasured or more happy, more content, more at peace, less stressed, less boiled by emotions that are damaging But the big question then becomes, how long is that going to last? And that's where there's much less certainty in that literature. Is it good for the next half hour? Or is it going to be good for the next decade kind of thing? Much less clear. So more research is definitely needed in those areas. What about uh, spirituality, some spiritual practices? Uh, do they help you overcome the challenges of our times? What does science say about that? Well, they can enormously. Um, and just to show my cards, I say this as someone who was once devoutly, devoutly, orthodoxly religious. 
and I am now a complete atheist and also not capable of any sort of spirituality. Um, nonetheless, what's clear to me is the right amount of spirituality is a wonderful thing. It's good for mental health. It, in very many circumstances, but not all of them, makes you kinder, makes you more tolerant, makes you more generous. What the studies show is very often it makes you more generous to people who seem like you, but not necessarily to those folks over there. But regardless, spirituality like that can be very, very protective, and this could be shown on a brain level. A, a caveat with that, though, which is something like spirituality or something like religiosity could be very, very good at reducing anxiety, which mm -hmm. sounds great. But when you look closely, a lot of the time, the anxiety that it's reducing is anxiety that the religiosity invented in the first place. So it's not clear how much of a pure blessing it is. What about secular uh, spirituality? Is it uh, available? Does it exist for you, for example? Do you have any um, uh, manifestation of spirituality in your life? Maybe you meditate? Maybe you do some mindfulness practices? Um, unfortunately, I don't. Um, and I probably would be much <laughs> mentally healthier if I did that sort of thing. Um, I'm a very reductive scientist who thinks that we are mostly deterministic machines. Nonetheless, it can be extremely helpful. And at least in the United States, there's been a shift away from okay, so you're not believing in God, you're not believing in religion, you're not believing in crusades and holy wars and all of that. You are an atheist, you lack a theistic structure. What you're mostly just saying is, these are the things I don't believe in. These are the things I don't do. These are the things I don't advocate. And that leaves this major emptiness often. And at least in the United States, what the atheist community has shifted towards is this new term, instead of saying we're atheists, we are saying we are humanists. I don't know if that term is caught on in Russia, but humanism has emerged as this movement here of people who are basically atheists, but are tired of saying, who am I? I am someone who doesn't believe in God, and I doesn't, don't believe in heaven and hell, and I don't. I am someone who believes instead in this and this and this, that humans are the source of their own justice and you know whatever versions that is. I think that's probably the best way in which secular spiritualism could take the form, mostly from the discovery that you are not alone, that there's other people who feel the same way, and you can get strength from that. Yeah, humanists are also, uh, it, it is also a term uh, that's used in Russia, but you also mentioned the term transhumanist. Um, there is also a Russian analog. Uh, transhumanists are people who oppose death and who are in favor of uh, transforming the human into something uh, better. What do you think about uh, this philosophy and whether it has chances to um, become mainstream in the coming years? This harks back to your original question about how optimistic I am about technology. One of the things that seems clear to me is if those sorts of advances ever do happen, not everybody is going to have equal access to it. It's going to be the wealthy and the privileged who will benefit the most from that at the beginning. 
Um, somewhere lurking in there, of course, is the question, would you want to live forever? And my guess is no. And there's been, of course, some greatly sort of divided and deeply thought out philosophical musings on that and the purpose of life. My opinion is this probably would be a nightmare because eventually it would be a universe in which nothing could ever surprise you again. And thus nothing could ever feel like play to you. Um, but maybe the technology will get there. At the moment, I would just be sufficiently happy if transhumanism took the form that a lot more people with spinal cord injuries were now able to walk around. That would be a pretty great advance. Yeah, that would be a great start. Uh, let's uh, answer some questions from our audience right now. Uh, you know that Facebook and other companies uh, are advocating for launching uh, metaverse or metaverses, uh, VR universes where people will engage uh, in uh, all activities that they now do in, uh, in the usual world but uh, in meta, in meta space. What do you think uh, will happen to the EQ, the uh, emotional intelligence of people? Mm, will it be harmed by the development of metaverse? I think it will be harmed enormously because it will be a long time before the wizards at places like Facebook, who are not necessarily uh, kind wizards, but it will be a long time before they really understand enough about it that you're not losing a whole lot of the richness of like how primates really interact with each other in the real world. Social intelligence, emotional intelligence will be narrowed down to essentials that are not necessarily the most healthy ones. I'm not very excited about this direction where it's going. I think the likes of Facebook has already shown us that they are not necessarily humanity's friends. How can the humanity overcome uh, its existential crisis to uh, reject esoterics and other illusions? As noted before, I, I really do view the world as a scientist. And one of the things I have long come to is I do not believe there is any free will whatsoever. I think we are nothing more or less than our biology, incredibly beautiful, sophisticated biology interacting with environment in subtle ways. But nonetheless, we're animals, we're primates, and I don't believe in free will. And I managed to teach that to a lot of my students. And what that often produces is exactly what you say, an existential crisis what is there to make of anything if like all we are is the sum of our neurons, if we are just another primate with some fancier habits, where's the purpose? And the answer is, I haven't a clue. I have absolutely no idea. I would be a far more content human if I could figure that out. But about the only thing that still guides me with that is even if we are just neurobiological machines, and nothing more or less than that, at the end of the day, pain is still painful. And it's a good thing if there's less of it in the world. And it seems like that's reason enough for us to be around in this unfree will sort of way if, you know, in the process we can reduce <laughs> some of the pains of the world along the way because 
You know, no matter how much we are just a bunch of neurons, a nervous system that is registering pain is really unpleasant and really tragic. Yeah, I see. Why are the words science and spirituality in the title of your book uh, if science is precise and spirituality is an abstraction? <laughs> oh, no. I'm suddenly in a panic. <laughs> I have not written any books in English in Russian. The in, I think it's because of the Russian localization of your title. They edit uh, science okay. and spirituality. Oh, my God. Yeah. What what is that book saying in another language? What is it I'm supposedly believing in? Um, I don't know. I think maybe what the translation is getting at is an idea instead that I emphasize a lot. And I think like the final sentence of the book focuses on this. There's a very, very false dichotomy between you could be scientific and rational and logical, or you could be compassionate about the world and empathic and all of that. And there's this completely false belief, especially people when they contemplate whether to be scientists, that you got to choose one or the other. And you don't in the slightest. They are not separate and each can reinforce the other very powerfully. And if that is some version of what would be translated into spirituality, I see that as completely compatible with science and essential to it. Okay, thank you, Robert. We need to choose the author of the best question from the audience um, to uh, give them your book, a copy of your book. Which uh, question did you like most? Oh, I guess just for sheer willingness to admit how scary all of this is, uh, the person who was willing to even evoke the notion of an existential crisis. Um, you're, you're braver than me, whoever you are, for bringing up something that is such an obviously painful thing to have to deal with when we think about us. Okay, we congratulate the, the winner. Uh, thank you so much, Robert. Let's hope that uh, science will help us overcome all those kinds of existential crises. <laughs>